Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Warfields Jarrett, The Meadows, Lexington, Kentucky, 1850. She was no one's notion of an easy mare. Not mean, but nervous, which could come to the same thing if you didn't account for it. Jarrett knew how to approach her, steady and deliberate. You shouldn't hesitate or show uncertainty, but if you were too high-handed, she'd make you pay. She could snake around and have a piece of your arm or kick out and crack a shin. Dr. Alicia Warfield had bred her himself and named her for his daughter-in-law, Alice Carneal. There were jokes around the barn about what he meant by that and what he might have been trying to say to his son. But Alice Carneal never hurt Jarrett. No horse ever had. Look at him, Dr. Warfield would say lifting one of Jarrett's long, skinny arms. He's half cold himself. Jarrett took it as a compliment. For what would be the use in taking it otherwise? And it was true he had a feel for horses, deep in the grain. The first bed he could remember was in a horse stall. He shared straw with the two geldings in the carriage house while his mother slept in the mansion, nursemaid to the mistress's infant. Jarrett barely saw her. His first language had been the subtle gestures and sounds of horses. He'd been slow to master human speech, but he could interpret the horses, their moods, their alliances, their simple wants, their many fears. He came to believe that horses lived with a world of fear. And when you grasp that, you had a clear idea how to be with them. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Geraldine Brooks' novels include the 2006 Pulitzer Prize winning March and the best-selling Caleb's Crossing and People of the Book. Her first novel, Year of Wonders, has been translated into more than 25 languages. Today, I'm talking with Geraldine Brooks about her latest novel, Horse. Geraldine, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. It is such a pleasure to be here. One of your first assignments as a journalist for the Sydney Morning Herald was to write up the running performance of every horse at the racetrack. That can't possibly be the basis for the passion and admiration for this noble animal that is so evident in horse. What does the horse mean to you now and how is it represented in this book? Actually, that job, my first job in journalism, had me on the run from the racetrack because I saw so many accidents with the horses and I'm a great animal lover and I was just appalled by the treatment of these magnificent animals and their misuse so it took me a long time to be able to get back to even thinking about writing about a racehorse but the idea for this book coincided with my midlife crisis which um, took an unusual turn you know some people buy a fast sports car and I bought a little pony and became horse crazy in my mid fifties and took my first riding lesson at 53. 
which I don't recommend, by the way, because <laughs> I'll never be any good as an equestrian. But I do love the bond that I have with my horse and I love spending time with her. I don't think I would have it would have occurred to me to write this book if I hadn't had the passion at the time. I had acquired my first horse and it was all I was thinking about. I was completely obsessed with reading about horses and learning about horses and spending time with horses. And this was having a very poor effect on the balance sheet because I wasn't interested in actually sitting down and writing the novel I was supposed to be writing. And I was just really lucky that I came across um, the story of this 19th century racehorse at that time. And I was then able to pass off my obsession as research and actually monetize it. Always a good outcome. Your work is often described as lyrical and there's a corresponding lyricism in the movement, the temperament and the physiology of horses and their relationship with humans. Were they natural partners in the writing of this book? Absolutely. You know, every morning, I the first thing I do is feed the dog and then the dog and I go over and feed the horses and turn them out for the day. So it's really, it's the start of my day. And that connection, I think, when you're breaking open a bale of hay and particularly in the wintertime because you're smelling the grass of last summer when you're dealing with hay and then you know, you're shoveling manure and it's very physical and it's also something human beings have been doing for hundreds of years. And it's a good thing for a historical novelist to be connected with an old task like that that's still being done much the same way. So um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a real privilege to be with animals, I think, and to try and cross the species barrier and get to a place of trust. Horse is about a racehorse, but in your afterward, you say this novel could not merely be about a racehorse. It would also need to be about race. Where is the connection between racing, the racetrack and racism? Well, so I started because I was fascinated with the story of a particular racehorse. Uh, and this horse was really a spectacular horse. Uh, he was the far lap of his era. He was not only a horse who had blistering speed, uh, he also had incredible endurance because what racing was in the antebellum period in America was four-mile races and they were heat races. So a horse would be required to race four miles three times in one day, which is unthinkable in modern terms because the longest race we have is about half that length. Imagine the Melbourne Cup lasting twice as long and then imagine the horses doing that two more times in the same day so it was a very different kind of test of a horse and this horse was superlative at it fastest one ever incredibly brave uh incredibly spirited but kind with a lovely nature and then as if that all wasn't enough gifts for one horse he also turned out to be the most prolific stud sire in American racing history and he sired more champions than any other thoroughbred so that was the story that attracted me and that was the story I thought I was going to tell about how this horse and what happened to this horse during the civil war which is quite a dramatic story but as I started to research it I realized that 
the people responsible for the care and for the success of this horse, many of them were black and enslaved and their stories had not been foregrounded. And then I had to realize that this was going to be a story about enslavement and about the particular predicament of the black horsemen who were skilled, who were professionals, who were admired for their skills, and yet they were still enslaved and had no agency over their ultimate fate. And so I realized that if I just foregrounded the white characters, that would be erasing their important history once again, and I wasn't going to do that. I think we have such a one-dimensional notion of what this was. And just as there are 20 million ways to be Black in America today, there's not one way, not one experience. There were many different ways that slavery expressed its repression and its brutality. And in the horse world, particularly, the lines were extraordinarily blurry. And as I was researching this book, you know, I found um, historical characters who were free Blacks, who then went on to enslave other Black people. I encountered white plantation owners who left their property to their Black children that they had begotten through an illicit relationship with an enslaved person, but they had fallen in love with that person and then left their plantation to the offspring of that marriage rather than the more conventional white marriage that they had. So there are all kinds of complexities and that's what I love about the truth. And that's why, because if you made it up, everybody would say, well, that couldn't possibly have happened. And that's why I like what Mark Twain said, um, fiction is obliged to stick to possibilities, truth isn't. And is this why historical fiction is such a wonderful vehicle for conveying those kinds of ideas, that wide range of experience? Well, it's what I look for in a historical story is something that if you, if you just made it up, it would be implausible. So earlier books of mine, uh, like Caleb's Crossing, which is about the first Native American graduate of Harvard, if you made up a story that said a young man raised in his own language and culture mastered Latin and Greek and sat down and graduated with the sons of the Puritan colonial elite in 1665. Nobody would believe that. They'd think it was a fantastic invention and not worth their time, but it actually happened. And so that's what makes it a story for me, the implausibility of the truth. And then you follow the line of truth as far as you can, and it's in the voids where you let your imagination try and fill in the picture in a way that it might have happened. Your exploration of slavery makes a point of the notion of ownership. And in that world of horses and horse racing, the naming conventions dictate that the horse takes the name of the white owner, and so does the slave. So in our central character, we have Warfield's Jarrett, then Ten Broke's Jarrett and Alexander's Jarrett. Your chapter headings are a constant reminder of that rather insidious idea. It's such a deplorable, repulsive idea. And I guess once I decided to write the truth of, of the story as I could 
discover it and the role of the black horseman whose labor was being blundered to create the great wealth and prestige that came from thoroughbred racing. I, I knew that I would have to go right at it because it's no good, you know, tiptoeing around the ugliness in history. You have to go right at it. So I wanted my readers to be jarred every time they see these chapter headings where this character who I hope that people will come to care about as much as I did just passes from owner to owner and his own identity is not his own until he is emancipated. Ownership of the horse doesn't actually seem to equate with an understanding the welfare or, or the training of the animal. It seems to be Jarrett, that is his great strength and that's what carries this story forward and I guess expresses the themes of this book so clearly. Well, it's kind of a love story really and I'm trying to reflect the importance that animals have in my life. We're all animals, um, but the non-human animals enrich my life so much. And so in Jarrett, I am writing a character who feels that way too, that this bond that he has with the horse that he's raised and trained from a fall is in a, in a way for, for many, many years, the most important relationship in his life and the, and the one constant one. And so, you know, I think that to the extent that you feel the connection, then the novel succeeds for me. The story takes this unexpected turn when Tenbroke puts forward this proposal. Everything was done according to the rules of the track, as you say, and the rules of the track affected not just what happened at the race course, but what happened in Jarrett's life. Well, going back to what I could ascertain as to the real history of how the ownership of the horse changed hands, I believe that an emancipated black man actually owned the horse, but he couldn't race the horse as a black man because that was against the law in Kentucky at the time. So he had to have a putative white owner, and I believe that he was blundered of his interest in the horse when it was sold. Uh, and there's some evidence to support this. Uh, anyway, it is a murky situation, as many of these things are, and we'll never get to the bottom of it. But it seems pretty likely to me that his interest in the horse didn't really count for much because of his race at the time, which put him in a subordinate position. It's a story that takes place at a time when a barbaric system was the, was the absolute norm. And so as a novelist, you have, to, you have to convey how normal this seemed to the white characters and yet reveal how abnormal it is at the same time without being preachy. So that, that was my job. And the story doesn't exist entirely in the 19th century. You bring it forward into the 21st century as well. You introduced Theo, a young black journalist and PhD candidate, and Jess, a young woman who just happens to be an Australian and articulates skeletons for a living at the Smithsonian, which makes me wonder, have you ever articulated the skeleton of a horse? Oh, but Jess is very much based on me as the nerdy little girl who used to go to the tip in, I think it was Mortlake, um, Concord maybe, anyway. In any case, wherever the tip was, I loved to bike there. 
and bring back scientific specimens to look at under my microscope. And, um, and my mother would have 50 fits when she saw what I was dragging home and immediately say, you know, you're going to poison yourself and get sick. And I'd say, you're going to stop me becoming a great scientist, which she did because <laughs> I'm not a great scientist. But anyway, I took my own nerdy girlhood and gave it to Jess. And um, yes, I did find a skeleton of a fruit bat that had been electrocuted. And I loved that skeleton. I loved the leathery billows of the wings and the incredible flanges of the bones that just like a hand, only much, much smaller because they've evolved to fan the air instead of grasp things. And yeah, there's a lot of me in Jess. And I knew that there was going to be a contemporary section of this novel because I found out about Lexington through a scientist at the Smithsonian who had been responsible for transporting the skeleton from Washington to the Museum of the Horse where it was going to be the centerpiece of a display and he talked about the horse's story and about the skeleton and then that led to a discussion of all the information that scientists can glean from bones and DNA and I love that as a novelist, you know, that is catnip to me to be able to get up in somebody's business and find out what they do when behind the do not enter doors in the museum to be able to get back there and see what's actually going on in the back rooms and the laboratories. And this book particularly led into a world of wonders with the science that goes on at the Smithsonian with the bones and with paintings and I just, I just really enjoyed that. So I knew that there would be a contemporary storyline. There's interesting tension too in the relationship between Jess and Theo. Theo discovers a, a painting of a horse in a rubbish dump or some discarded household furniture. And then there's this, I guess, meeting of minds between Theo and Jess. But what came out first was this kind of casual racism which is almost benign in their early meetings. Is that something you also wanted to explore? Well, I knew that once I was going to write about race in the past, I couldn't leave it in the past because I was writing this book with the jackhammer of Donald Trump banging outside my window every single day and his, his tolerance and... Um, celebration, in fact, of white supremacy, uh, the way he encouraged the white supremacists in Charlottesville, and the way he said evil and demeaning things about African countries, just the racism that was such a loud noise in contemporary America. So I thought I can't write about this as something that's over and done with, and then have a nice contemporary section that doesn't reverberate with all those echoes because that's not how it is. It is an unfinished story. This novel seems to expand the whole notion of what we know and understand as racism. Was that something that grew out of the process of writing and researching or something that was part of your original conception for Horse? I was just writing out of what I know to be true, uh, what I know to be true for my Black friends 
one of the things that I guess the novel foregrounds is that education and wealth and class don't protect people. I have a friend on this island who, uh, Martha's Vineyard, where I live, um, who is a professor at Harvard, who was hauled off his own porch in handcuffs by a policeman for having the temerity to try and open his own front door. You know, so this is, this is the reality of black life. And I think a lot of white people like to say, oh, well, that all happened and it's over now and why can't these people just get over it? Well, it's not over. It reverberates every day in black life. And I think it's important as a white person to listen and learn and try to understand that. Geraldine Brooks, thank you for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thanks for having me. I've been talking to Geraldine Brooks about her book, Horse. It's published by Hachette, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. Subscribe to Good Reading Print and Online Magazine at goodreadingmagazine.com.au.